Welcome to the Future Think podcast from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with my colleague, Andrew Maynard, we chat with a variety of experts on and off campus about science, technology, innovation, and policy. This podcast brings you the hallway conversations where we think about our collective future. Today's episode is the first in our five-part series on innovation, society, and the circular economy for the 2016 Disruptive Innovation Festival. Andrew and I talked with Eric Fisher about responsible innovation and the circular economy. Eric is an associate professor with us in the School for the Future of Innovation in Society. He's also the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Responsible Innovation. If you're listening between November 9th when this first airs and November 20th, we'd love to have you join the Disruptive Innovation Festival conversation. You can visit the festival online at thinkdiff.co, that's T-H-I-N-K-D-I-F dot C-O, and locate our podcast events to add your comments. You can also leave us comments on iTunes or SoundCloud anytime or tweet at us at FutureThinkPod. As always, if you like what we're doing, please tell your friends. And thank you for listening. We're going to talk about um, uh, circular economy and responsible innovation with Eric Fisher, who thinks a lot about this. I do. I do. And the idea behind responsible innovation is essentially that innovation is good, but it can be better. Mm-hmm. And that if we pay attention to the processes of innovation and help actors at every stage, from scientists to policymakers to consumers to funders to regulators to entrepreneurs, be more aware of the ways in which innovation is already socially embedded, we can help the innovation processes be more responsive to those social factors. What do you mean by socially embedded? Meaning that it's not just a technology that brings a solution. There's a whole series of choices in design, in research material, in purpose, in how you market it and how you manufacture it that is going to shape that technology in one way versus another. And those choices are not uh, value-free, right? Some social groups, some consumers, some citizens are going to react differently based on the choices and values that go into these decisions. So it's really recognizing that there's a social side of innovation, even though we might think about it as just somebody coming up with a new gizmo and people either buy it or they don't. There's a whole sort of social infrastructure around how the choices are made, how decisions are made with that, I guess, including how it's used and then how we get rid of it at the end of its life. Precisely. Yeah. Right. And I mean, that's something that we don't train our scientists and engineers to think about, partly because it seems completely irrelevant. Uh, right. Right. And, and also because it seems to be not just a waste of time to think about, but potentially inhibiting, right? If I'm trying to solve equations and get designs to, to perform well under stress tests, and you, you're going to ask me about these social dimensions, isn't that just going to confuse me and slow me down? Well, what's interesting is that the reason responsible innovation has sort of got so much momentum is that uh, around the world, scientists and engineers have been sort of testing this out and mm-hmm. thinking about the social dimensions as they're doing their technical work, and in some cases, their technical work actually gets a boost. Right. Interesting. Like, can you give us an example of? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, so there's a laboratory um, you know, working on uh, uh, nanotechnology, mm-hmm. 
particles that were synthesized for you know basically an automotive function. Okay. And uh, in the process of developing this new type of of uh, application, they realized that they couldn't quite synthesize the carbon nanotubes they were trying to. Uh, they were very good at synthesizing them mm -hmm. until they had these new constraints. And it was a smaller geometry that they were trying to grow the carbon nanotubes inside of. It just didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but this was happening simultaneously to a series of more philosophical questions about, now why are we doing this and who's going to care how we do it and what are our different choices? Mm -hmm. And at first it seemed like this was just going to be an impossible mission, they couldn't get it done. But then they sort of thought, well, when we had these philosophical conversations, we came up with some other ways to do this. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, um, even though the first couple of weeks were frustrating, over a, a several month period, they ended up tweaking their design parameters, not only being able to bring this project back to life when it had been shelved, but doing it in a way that got them the technical goals that they had, and in addition to that, it was more environmentally responsible. Okay. So this wasn't planned from the beginning, right. but it was by asking these difficult questions and right. keeping things alive that they just had a greater option space, yeah. and so it was more creativity. So, so one thing I find fascinating actually working with entrepreneurs is if you take a, a young entrepreneur and ask them, what do you want to achieve with your life? They very rarely say, I want to make buckets of money. They say, I want to make the world a better place. Mm -hmm. I want to cure illness. I want to sort of help the environment. Um, and yet, then when they dive into the technology, they seem to forget all of that and then just focus on the technology. So what actually you're describing here is actually bringing in that broader perspective of innovating responsibly helps them stay true to those original values and desires while they're actually creating something which is profitable. No, that's a good way to put it. It really is bringing things together that are normally kept separate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. interesting. Wait, so that's what I was thinking about in terms of how do you take that turn then from people working in a lab which doesn't have the same uh, commoditization drive, mm -hmm. right, and constraints and, and uh, imperatives, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, then you've got decisions that are moving more quickly. Um, and, and you're you're already thinking more about the socially embedded aspects of your work, mm -hmm. um, but I think there's a degree of stress and um, sort of the riskiness of your decisions that sort of makes uh, the the sort of industrial R and D as opposed to academic R and D um, in a way more high stakes, yes. more fast moving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but arguably, that's where these tools of responsible innovation are more needed and can actually um, pay off more quickly. You've probably heard of the SWOT analysis, mm -hmm. strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats, right? Yeah. People use this all the time, but it doesn't necessarily expand the option space. It doesn't allow people to tap into, as Andrew was saying, these entrepreneurial goals and commitments, these broader things that people, that really motivate people to get up in the right. morning and right. to choose a career in technology. Um, but responsible innovation can do that. Yep. So it's a form of decision support that can help people with their bottom line, it can help them manage complexity and stress and uncertainty and multiple stakeholders and all that kind of risky stuff, but at the same time moving the innovation forward. So is there, do we need a SWOT of responsibility? <laughs> so, so SWOT and responsibility together, interesting combination. But, yes. but really, do we right, need, right. you know, do we need to, 
grow a culture of sort of doing this responsibility themed SWOT analysis yeah. on top of the other more operational SWOT analyses. Yeah, I mean, there's a way in which SWOT is, is, is never going to go away. People use it, but it's also not very robust. And so to bring in other tools yep. that are responsibility-focused that gain the same currency that SWOT currently has, that's the challenge. And, and of course, when you're thinking about a, a SWOT approach, you have to define what your end goals are. So if you're talking about strengths, um, strengths within what context. Mm -hmm. right. So um, responsible innovation, and even sort of going as far as bringing in the circular economy, mm -hmm. that begins to help define the goals that you're trying to understand sort of how you're aligning with those goals or how you potentially going to disrupt your ability to, to get to those goals because you're not thinking broadly enough. Precisely. And the opportunity to think broadly and the incentives for thinking broadly, that's another aspect of the system that really needs to be tweaked. Yes. You know, just, you know, paying people and rewarding them to be not just creative in terms of you know, basic research ideas, mm -hmm. which is wonderful, but also creative in terms of applications, creative in terms of all, just completely alternative combinations, the different types of conversations that you have. Yes. Um, all of that can go into um, not just individual research projects, but you know, the whole economy of you know, technology-based innovation itself. The richer flow of ideas, greater right. throughput is going to eventually allow people to go, oh, you know, there are greater goals here that we can include in our analysis. Exactly. So I, sometimes it seems if you take a very traditional education, say in, in engineering or technology mm -hmm. development, um, you end up with blinkers on. So the solution space you see is very, very limited. Right. Um, and partly what we're talking about now is just opening out that solution space so you can see different ways of achieving the same ends. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and sometimes we learn through failure, right? right? I mean, you know, if you take engineers through a series of steps where they see that there's this brilliant scientific idea, it's applied in this technological mm -hmm. domain, they come up with these wonderful innovations, it's going to solve these problems, and then you take them a few steps later, you've got the legal apparatus, you've got the funding, and it just doesn't pan out in the market. Why? Because your expectations for how people were going to use this didn't really match reality, right? Right, right. And, and so that becomes an opportunity to go, okay, next time we're developing, you know, a set of equations that are, you know, related to material, uh, you know, form and, and then set into a, a user environment, maybe we can think a little bit about that user environment. Right, yes, yeah. So one of the things that is in that's critical to a circular economy working is that user environment. I think when we think about responsible innovation, when we think about technology, we think very much in the research and development and the firm. We're not thinking about the users as critically a part, mm. right, of that innovation. Yeah, that's the linear model. Yeah, it is the linear model. So, but, you know, we, we want to push out these ideas of responsibility yeah. to the engineers and the scientists, mm. but it seems like it's equally important to push those ideas to the users. Yeah, right? so I think there are two really interesting sides of that. One is making sure the developers are fully aware that users and consumers are part and parcel of the whole sort mm -hmm. of development and use ecosystem. Mm -hmm. But but then I, I think part of what you were saying is maybe the users need to understand their role, their responsibility yeah. here mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. um, which is 
tricky but really interesting because of course it's very very hard to imagine um, a really efficient circular economy if the consumers don't see themselves as part of that yes, and having exactly. a role to play in that. Yeah. Yes. Now that taps into the very meaning of responsible innovation. It's not responsible innovators, mm -hmm. right? Yes, it's responsible the, innovation as a system, yes. which includes citizens. And so this notion of co-responsibility, mm -hmm. collective responsibility, um, yeah, it's everyone has to sort of evolve together, and I think one of the ways to do that is just to make people more aware of the systems in which they're already embedded. Right. Users right. can affect producers. Producers can affect users. We rarely spend time thinking and talking about these things or taking them seriously as design constraints. Yes. But. You know, responsible innovation shows that if you do that, you actually get better innovation. So, have you had any experience with trying to engage with consumers? So, I so I know from my experience that everybody just seems incredibly busy. They've got to get mm -hmm. their kids to school. They've yeah. got to get enough money in to put food on the table. Yeah, that's right. And they've got a thousand and one things that they're doing. Mm -hmm. How do you get them to? pay attention and see themselves as part of this big machine. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends what your goals are, right? There's right. these wonderful experiments, for instance, up in Denmark, where they set up these artistic installations in the middle of malls, and people go through them, and they're asked a series of questions, and they start to see all the nuances that go into an innovation trajectory that's normally just taken for granted. Oh yeah, the engineers are handing it off to the marketers. No, actually there's all these cool things. So mm -hmm. then they walk away with this appreciation, mm -hmm. um, which presumably is going to help them be more intelligent as consumers. Yep. Um, they might think about how that relates to uh, questions of voting and mm -hmm. politics, mm -hmm. um, you know, job trajectories for their children and whatnot. But then you also have another set of goals, and that is participatory design, mm -hmm. right? Bringing consumers, bringing stakeholders, bringing users into the design environment, right. into right. the even you know the question of which research do we want to fund. That's part of a bigger question of what kind of world do we want to live in, right? Yeah. And I I guess the more you engage people like that, the more invested they are in what happens afterwards. They're going to pay attention. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And they also simultaneously get to dabble in technology and see right. how freaking mm -hmm. cool. <laughs> yeah, so this is great, and I feel very sort of comfortable in this space, and I think this is the top 2% experience, mm. right? So what about the bottom 98% right, who is right. most adversely affected by mm -hmm. the impacts of a linear economy model? Yeah. Yeah. How, how could we engage the masses, right? Yeah. And the masses where, right? I mean, you know, are we going to stay in yeah. the 2% in the, you know, the U.S. and the Western world, or do mm -hmm. we want to talk about the global south? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because this whole circular economy bit is not, it's not a bit, but it can't work without everybody. Well, that, well right? that's right. And if you're not careful, you end up developing a model where actually this is a concept for the privileged that we're mm -hmm. trying to impose on everybody. It's so, so right? That, that's yeah. exactly it. So this question of how you fully engage that 98% and get them um, involved, including those, those communities that really are strapped for time and money and resources mm -hmm. and it takes them all their time just to make sure their kids get to school with a uniform with food in their right. belly. Right. Without getting mugged or right. you know raped on the way to school. Right, right. That's going in a dark place really fast. But that's <laughs> but the reality that's, for yeah, so many that, people. That, that's, that's right. what right. drives irresponsible but, innovation right. is, mm -hmm. is just dysfunctional societies. But but I think it, it, it really focuses a spotlight on if we're going to make responsible innovation 
um, work and be practicable and truly socially responsive, you've got to think of that whole spectrum of people, right. not just the people at the top of the pile. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so it's about diversity and inclusion. I mean, mm -hmm. inclusiveness is one of the key foundations of responsible innovation, and that includes not just uh, you know, different stakeholders and, and consumers, but also different types of innovators. So people who spend their day going back and forth between two cities in South Africa developing ways to link bicycles up to sewing machines right. and right. showing other people how to do this, right? So that the micro-innovation that's already going on, y mm -hmm. yes. we need to just spend more time uh, thinking about it and appreciating it. And, and I, you know, it makes me wonder whether there are opportunities here. So mm. part of this is about empowerment rather than Imposing, imposing yeah. that, that, that's right, imposing your ideas onto a community, giving them the tools and the ability to sort of build their own um, community and, and ways of doing things. Mm -hmm. So right. now, as these communities are empowered, if you can bring in these ideas of responsibility and mm -hmm. actually getting back to the circular economy, mm -hmm. empower them to mm -hmm. develop new systems, new ways of doing things, right. which automatically yeah. sort of respond to this idea of circularity. Yeah, yeah, you know, one of the things that strikes me is that we get all excited about I spend most of my time thinking about healthcare, right? We get all excited about developing new low-cost healthcare technologies for use in, you know, developing countries. Mm. Why only in developing countries? Right. And why would that mm -hmm. it just makes no sense to me. Right. And it's totally antithetical to the notion of the circular economy. No, yes. it is. Yes. No, I'm thinking about a situation in Indian biofuels innovation where you had a bunch of researchers working with, you know, multiple dozens of, of farmers to sort of grow new species of, of trees on their land. And at the same time, the Indian government was developing policies for, for bio um, energy. And they were working against one another, right? The sort mm -hmm. of the ground up effort was trying to empower f local farmers and local innovators, which the top down effort wanted scale, mm -hmm. and so it wasn't going to help local farmers. And so, you know, you can see this playing out in all sorts of areas. And on some level, it's a simple paradigm shift to think through just a couple more nodes in the system and mm -hmm. see how we can complete in a circular model. It's not just a circular economy. There should be circular policies, circular innovations. Um, and you know, it's really something that, as we've pointed out again and again, it's not just one group of experts or one group of elite thinkers pushing this thing through. It really has to evolve together, which comes back to the notion of conversation and not education as a one-way street, but mm -hmm. engagement, learning from one another and seeing how, why my really good ideas just don't work in your country. Why is that? Right, right. So uh, it, it actually, again, it strikes me that a large part of this is, is listening. So I, you look at the work you do, sort of going into labs and becoming embedded in labs. I think we probably need the same sort of thing in terms of being embedded in communities and just mm -hmm. listening to communities That's right. and learning what's important to them and how they operate. Yeah. Well, there yeah. are plenty of people who do that, right. but those people, anthropologists, don't get to sit at the same tables as technology right. policy makers, mm -hmm. right? right? <laughs> so it seems like maybe all the pieces exist, but we don't have the mechanisms to 
force them to we, we need to thread them together, together. somehow. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, okay. it's, a, it's a wicked problem because on the one hand, we do have all the pieces. Right. But who's going to put them together? Yes. Right? So so the other way to work is, is a combination of top-down visioning, but also bottom-up listening, as Andrew was saying, interacting, understanding. Anthropologists chose a different line of work than, say, to go into Silicon Valley and, and try to mm-hmm. get a startup going. But that doesn't mean that both sets can't adopt a little bit of the language and and imbibe the experiences of the other. Yes. So how do you get it to happen? Yeah, well, the division of labor in society is pretty deep. It goes back to Adam Smith. Um, I think, you know, what we're saying before about incentives Mm -hmm. and and make it possible for people to blur boundaries, you know, I mean, don't force them to do it, but if they've got an insight, they want to walk across the hallway and talk to a different expert or they want to spend an afternoon looking at the research, um, where, where the research and the development is going to sit once it's developed. You know, a lot of that stuff is just straight out of industrial design. Good, right. You know, you want to make a new shopping cart? Go watch how people use shopping carts and then come back and you'll have better right. ideas. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. I think that's, that's very much the case. Mm. Yeah. I'm still struggling with how how to get it done. Yeah. Is it a policy instrument that we so, need? So actually, I, I think the only way you can approach this, like most wicked problems, is have multiple approaches mm-hmm. and be adaptive. Because you know as soon as you try and move towards a solution, the nature of the problem is going to change. Of course. But, so you've got to have those multiple ways uh, forwards. But one of them which is interesting I think is the ability to inspire people Mm. so you're not going to get buy-in from anybody whether Mm. it's experts communities Mm. consumers whoever if they're not inspired to be part of something Mm -hmm. and take action Mm -hmm. Um, and that means taking sometimes counterintuitive approaches so how do you inspire somebody you don't just lecture them you Mm -hmm. actually you you do something make them part of something which excites Mm -hmm. them which they they see sort of personal sort of deep Mm -hmm. emotive value in Mm -hmm. and you do that through the arts as well as through education and and science Um, and this applies not only say to consumers but also academics or or experts as well so you think about you take a, a group of overburdened, overbusy academics in mm-hmm. different disciplines. Um, I suspect in all of them there's this little nugget of what they really want to do that oh, has sure. been buried mm-hmm. in what they feel they have to do. Yeah. How do you give them the space and the freedom and the license to be inspired to, to do the more creative things, to create those connections that they don't usually create? Okay. Uh, and part of that is, is just the space and the freedom to be creative to do that. No, I mean, that's that's really great, Andrew. I agree completely. And two sort of complementary virtues that come to mind are one is curiosity. Yes. Right? If we can design organizations and institutions and economies that at least don't punish and, and ostracize curiosity, they allow curiosity to exist in little tiny pockets. And we right. can cherish those pockets, but we don't have to, you know, try to force everyone to have them. You know, when you but when you come across them, nurture them. The other is patience. Yes. Right, because this is not something that's going to change because we have a policy, you know, that that comes down the pipeline and, and suddenly you know you wake up tomorrow and we've got a circular economy. This is something mm-hmm. that's got as much as we'd like that. Uh, this has got to happen incrementally, um, both to honor different interests and values that are already embedded in the system. Some of which can move more quickly. Some of which needs to need to transition in a way that is sustainable. Yes. So again, looking for the opportunity to move forward, 
taking case studies where we can show responsible innovation is working and broadcasting those in an inspiring manner, but also, you know, accepting that the change is not going to be immediate and uh, yep. right. across the board. Be realists. Exactly. Yeah, okay, be. so if we solved anything today, which I don't think we did, but <laughs> if we did, it was to say that we need three things in order to make the circular economy work. Mm. We need space for inspiration, mm. we need to nurture curiosity, and we need to have patience. It's a good start. Is there right. anything that that doesn't apply to, really? <laughs> right, right. I mean, let's you mean be we just solved everything? Yeah, yes. so yeah. I think we might have just solved yes. the world. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> but, but, I, but I think these are so often forget, forgotten. I, and mm. this is so critical that sometimes we formalize and operationalize things so much that we forget that we need to nurture that curiosity and just that delight mm. and engagement in doing yeah, things uh, right. with this freedom to explore new ideas. Yeah. And I mean, you know, just having the courage to ask questions, why am I really doing this? Mm -hmm. Why am I working on this? Why am I about to make this purchase? Why am I making this investment? Why am I supporting this, this policy? And not assuming that it's just a, either I do it or I don't, either I innovate it or I don't, right? There are all sorts of wonderful shades of gray in between the either or, the go, no go. Mm -hmm. And to just allow people to explore that space from time to time. That's a capacity that we need if the system is going to shift forward in a productive, exciting, and responsible manner. Yep. All right. So we need to appreciate grayscale, too. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. The Future Think podcast is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Our music is by Mark Van Hare. Please subscribe. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud and on Twitter at FutureThinkPod.